0: When there is collaborations between artists and organizers, we can win, and we can change narratives, and we can change politics. Hello, this
1: is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Ken Grossinger, is a principal at Democracy Partners and former legislative field director at the AFL CIO. He's a new book called Artworks How Organizers and Artists Are Creating a Better World Together. I asked Ken about his career in the labor movement and as an activist, and also about how he came to understand art's place in the fight for justice. If you're interested in protecting and improving our democracy, you should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Ken Grossinger of Democracy Partners. Again, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: Sure. Nice to see you, Nathaniel. I would say I've been working in the field of social and economic justice for about 35, maybe a little longer years. Most of that time, I worked in the organizing community. In the early 80s, I was mentored by a scholar named Richard Cloward, who wrote several books about the welfare rights movement, poor people's movements, regulating the poor, and so forth. And jointly with his wife, Frances Fox Piven, we founded an organization called the Human Serve Fund. Serve was an acronym for the Service Employees Registration Voting and Education. At that time, the service sector was predominantly women and people of color. Piven and Cloward argued that if we could reach them with workers in welfare centers, we wouldn't have to be partisan in our approach because we would know how they would vote. And so I got my start in organizing and voting rights and did that for several years. Uh, And then moved on to um, work as a political operative and then went to work in the labor movement at two unions, the Service Employees International Union and the AFL-CIO. At SEIU my most important contribution was we created, this is under the presidency of John Sweeney, we created a legislative field program, which at that time did not exist in any of the 62 affiliated unions of the AFL-CIO. Historically, what Labor had been doing is buying access and hoping that that would translate into influence through their contributions financially. But there was no ground game the ground game was all in elections, wasn't around legislation. And so we set out to do that, to create a legislative field program where there would be infrastructure in the states that we were constantly going to for votes to pass legislation. And when I moved from SCIU to the AFL-CIO, following Sweeney's path, He then asked me to do that uh, across the board, and there's now about 23 unions that have legislative field operations. And my job at the AFL-CIO was to run the legislative field operations and build long-term alliances between community and labor organizations. The final word I'll say about this is that at some point, I resigned from the AFL-CIO. I think it was in 2006. And then started with my wife, Micheline Klagsbrun, who is an artist. A foundation called the Cross Currents Foundation, and through that foundation, we funded work at the intersection of art and social justice. So that was another way for us to marry our passions. So that's sort of the start. I am going to
1: take the liberty of inquiring a little more about some of those pieces that I'm just curious about. One is, where did you grow up, and what kind of family?
0: Ah, uh, I grew up in New York, kind of a lower middle class Jewish community. My father held a series of working class jobs. He wasn't a job jumper, actually, but he didn't seem to hold on to uh, jobs for very long periods of time. And my mother worked in, at that time, a burgeoning temp industry as a secretary in a national office, uh, I think it was called Olson, Olston's. If I know where this question is going, and it may not be where it's going, but I had no kind of social justice drive within my family beyond my father, who would occasionally participate in Democratic Party, particularly during the Kennedy administration.
1: And you, did you go straight to college out of high school or did you start working? What was your path into the workforce?
0: After I graduated high school, which was 1972, I went right to college, four years. Where and what did you study? Up in Rochester, New York, one of the state university schools of New York called Brockport. And I had a dual major in psychology and philosophy.
1: Was there any sort of social justice awakening going on at that time for you?
0: Yeah, very much so. The the question was always, I didn't know at that age that I could do organizing for a living. So I was on a different track. I was gonna be a PhD psychologist, and I just am drawn to philosophy, so studied philosophy too, and do my activism sort of like most people do their activism. At some point during that period, I learned that, wait a second, I could do this for a living. I won't make a lot of money, but I could do it for a living. I was very involved in the Attica fight back, during the prison riot because that was the the trial was going up in Buffalo and we were outside of Rochester. So we were fairly close and involved in a bunch of other kind of student oriented protest activities around uh, multiple issues. Vietnam War, things like that. Yeah. Yeah, Among them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So what did you do right after college?
0: I took off four years before I went to graduate school. I worked as a substance abuse counselor in California. Difficult job, very difficult job. I worked in a residential treatment facility as an alternative to jail time. Addicts and alcoholics were court appointed into this operation. So I did that for almost four years and then went to graduate school at Columbia University, where I intended to do a social work law degree and then met Richard
1: Cloward. And I remember reading Piven and Cloward when I was in college. I can't remember which one. And they were notable scholars in that area, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, they're internationally, they were. Richard died in 2011. Francis is still with us in 91. They've probably published a dozen books. Richard and Francis have each published their own books. Yeah, they're quite well regarded. And, you know, they were not just, academics they were scholar activists they laid the predicate the strategy for the National Welfare Rights Organization and it was based upon their work they hired George Wiley to run the National Welfare Rights Organization George's daughter now is Maya Wiley who runs the leadership conference they have been active participants in movement for social change not just kind of academic observers and that's sort of where the Human Serve Fund experience came from. So how did you meet him originally? You took a class with him? Yeah, I took a class with him and instantly realized that I needed to be closer to him to learn more. And I don't know to this day whether I held on to his arm and wouldn't let go or he took me under his wing. We became very close. He became my mentor and eventually my employer for the Human Serve Fund. What was it about him
1: that made you want to be close?
0: He was a brilliant strategic analyst. I wanted that skill set, and I wanted the depth that he brought, the understanding that he had of what moves people into action.
1: And if you had to characterize that understanding, what was it?
0: Well, I'm not exactly sure how to characterize that. I think he understood the larger forces at play in politics for instance, the migration of blacks from the South to the North. So there was these demographic shifts. He understood how they interacted with economic shifts and political shifts. And he would always make the point that the possibilities for change, at least on the legislative front, are real, but only if we have people in office who are subject to pressure. So there needed to be a constituency to organize So we could organize a lot of protest movements around Republican ideas. But if we wanted to advance national health care reform or something else, then we needed to have Democrats in office so that we can organize and mobilize a base of support. And he he put all those things together. I would say also that Cloward came out of a, he was an eminent sociologist before he became a social worker. He actually went back to social work school. He wrote a couple of books on deviance and his notion uh, of deviance was that they were rule violators, that they did what they, deviants did what they had to do to get by and weren't bad apples, but they dealt with the circumstances that they were handed. He considered protest deviant behavior in some ways. I don't know if he would describe it that way, but there are not a lot of social movements There was the labor movement. There was a civil rights movement. There was an anti-war movement. But you can count the number of movements there have been in the 20th century, not a lot. And so it was an unusual time and it was deviant in that sense of the word.
1: So tell me about the human serve experience. Motor voter is something that is related to that. I remember that passing in the early
0: 90s. what did you do there? The backdrop was that the Reagan administration was in office And uh, that was the time that Ronald Reagan was defining nutrients as mustard, relish, and ketchup. And there was a lot of protest. And the social welfare community really wasn't out there commenting on it in in very public ways. And that's largely because they were constrained about what they can do as C3 organizations and so forth. And so we were looking for some type of fight back. He and Francis came up with the idea of what they called at the time agency-based voter registration. The idea was workers inside the agencies would register their clients to vote. They would argue that we'll never have enough volunteers to offset the money that the right has, and so we need to find a way to reach our natural base, and that was a way to do it. And the agency-based voter registration idea took hold initially in private sector social welfare organizations, and then uh, eventually big state governors and secretaries of state. So Ann Richards in Texas, Sherrod Brown in Ohio, Cuomo in New York, they issued executive orders requiring public workers to do voter registration with their clients. And the only precondition was it couldn't be partisan. And so the Republican Party uh, fought back against that quite hard. And Human Serve continued long after I left And in 1995, Clinton signed what you refer to as Motor Voter, the National Voter Registration Act. The Voter Registration Act was much broader than the Department of Motor Vehicles because with the Department of Motor Vehicles, you never know who's actually going to register to vote and how they're going to register to vote. In the welfare offices, it's a pretty sure bet. And so it happened in a big way in the DMVs, less so in the social welfare.
1: So did that work lead you to the SEIU?
0: How did you get from here to there? So because I was working primarily with women and people of color doing that, that's who we were registering. And that is who represented the service sector in the early 80s. The choice for me was, did I want to become the director of an agency to raise money for others to organize, which was my passion, or did I want to organize and not have to worry about the finances? The most progressive union at the time, and maybe one of the most progressive today, was the Service Employees International Union that represented primarily low-income communities and communities of color. And so that led me into the labor movement.
1: I've talked to a reasonable number of people, union leaders and the like. It seems to me like a different world in some regards what what was your experience there
0: it's definitely a different world <laughs> it's its own world yeah one becomes if you work in the labor movement very insular when i was at the AFL-CIO we had 16 million members 60 or 62 affiliates and i was coordinating legislative field operations and what that meant is not only did i have to reach consensus about strategy with the national union offices, but then that had to repeat itself several times in each of the states at the Central Labor Councils and the State Federations of Labor. And so I say that to say that that in and of itself is an impossible job. And so you have no time to interact with other sectors. It can be very frustrating, very uh, rewarding because of what you're doing and who you're representing, but also quite frustrating. What was the highlight of your time at SEIU? That's a good question. I think I was jazzed about national health care reform. I started at SEIU on the West Coast in local land. And when I was on the West Coast, I had built an alliance of big businesses and unions for health care reform, and the common denominator was cost controls. And Sweeney, although he was president of SEIU, also chaired the AFL-CIO Healthcare Committee. So he asked me if I would take a leave for a couple of years to come back to D.C. to see if we could replicate what I did in California nationally. And that whole experience really thrust me into national labor politics in a way that I had not experienced before. My adrenaline was going 24 hours a day.
1: Wow. Tell me about Sweeney. He seems like a very important guy in your life if you follow him to AFL CIO I don't I know the name of course but I really don't know about him tell me about him
0: so John Sweeney comes from a working class background i think his father was a bus driver and his mother was a domestic worker he just had an instinct for organizing workers i don't recall quite honestly anymore sort of the trajectory of his life But when I worked with him fairly closely at SEIU, the AFL-CIO, not as much because it was such a more, so much more of a demanding scope. I found him to be an extraordinarily humble person, someone with a lot of humility and very smart strategically. You know, I would be in meetings with him members would come into the office over on L Street at that time in Washington, DC. He would look at me as if to say, how come everyone doesn't have water? And he would go out and get everybody water. It was a a lesson learned rather quickly. Uh, But uh, it was the kind of guy that he was. He respected people first. It was people and relationships and politics and strategy second. And I just thought he brought a brilliance to his work because he really charged the organizing work in a way that it it had not been charged in the labor movement. And he also had the foresight, in addition to creating a legislative field program, to invest in a communications program. One of my close friends, Denise Mitchell, ran that program for a very long time. And and then she did that for Sweeney at the AFL-CIO too. He understood that union signs couldn't just be pre-printed signs that people brought to a picket line, but there had to be some humanity expressed through them. It had to be created. And so that's a very, very small example of his orientation towards communications and, and and it worked to some extent.
1: And did you find yourself like thinking of him as a mentor, like you did Cloward or what was the relationship like?
0: Yeah, it wasn't like Cloward in that Cloward and I would, I mean, every day for years uh, in and out, multiple times a day. Sweeney was the president of a very large union. I was not part of his executive, his kitchen cabinet. I don't even know that his kitchen cabinet had that much time as I had with Cloud. but they certainly had more regular routine meetings and interactions with John than I did. I was a staff person at 7 p.m. at night. He'd come and see me in his stocking feet, sit down and chat. But the alone time with him, I didn't get very much.
1: How was the transition over to the AFL-CIO?
0: It was huge. It was so exciting. Sweeney took the success that he had at SEIU and tried to infuse it in the AFL-CIO context. That's on the organizing front. There's a program that we created called Union Cities that a woman named Marilyn Schneiderman an organizer of longstanding, I think she's in Washington, D.C. still. Um, he he diversified the board, he brought in some unions like Endlon, the National Day Labor Organizing Network that weren't dues paying members, but had an important role in the labor movement. He really boosted the visibility of our work in very important programmatic ways.
1: Did you overlap with Mike Podhorzer Yep. I had him on the podcast maybe in the spring. What's the difference between a political director and the
0: legislative director or whatever? So Mike ran the political part of the shop, which is to say the elections and the legislative department, of course, focused on the legislation. There was overlap conceptually between the political and legislative in terms of the field operations, the political department tended to focus on strengthening things up a year out of election. The legislative department tended to focus on thing on building more permanent infrastructure. And the two complemented each other quite well.
1: That's a two decades in labor, at least for you. How did that affect your perspective on American politics to today?
0: Well, it shaped my entire, shaped how I think about the world, really, from a workers' perspective and from the perspective of power, who has it and who doesn't and how to wield it. So does that mean you, you feel like you see it through the eyes of the people who are
1: union members more so than you would have by a long shot? By a long shot. Yeah. And how, how does that make you think about the two parties, uh, Republicans and Democrats? Well, I've never been a fan, as I know you haven't been, of the Republican Party. Well, I think the Republican Party wasn't so bad in the 1860s, but. Well, <laughs> yes, <absolutely. laughs> and of course, it's getting a lot
0: worse now than it was.
1: Yes. Um, it's making uh, the old Republican Party that I disliked look really good. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's right.
1: But I felt the skepticism about the Democratic Party from a lot of people that I've talked to in labor, even if that has varied a lot depending on their position and their ideology and things like that?
0: Well, I think that that's right. One can quickly get disappointed in what politicians say they're going to deliver and what they actually deliver. I mean, my orientation was more of an outsider, protest-oriented But during the course of legislative fights, it became clear that we needed both inside and outside strategies. And that's how the labor movement affected my worldview in that sense, or my view of politics in the United States, at least, that I always think we need to have an inside game and an outside game. And one or the other by themselves just don't work.
1: So what occasioned you to leave and do Cross Currents and and many of the other projects that you've done, including the book that we're going to talk about?
0: You know, there had been a transition of leadership from Sweeney to Trump. Wait, Sweeney to? Trump. Richard Tr- Trump. Not Trump. <laughs> 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 He's rolling over in his grave right now. Yeah. Let's try that again. <laughs> R- Richard Trumpka. Yeah. There had been a... <laughs> Maybe that was a Freudian slip. I don't know. <laughs> there had been this transition going on, and there was a lot of uh, movement uh, on the staff level that followed the transition. And I had done it for a long time. And this insularity that I was describing about the labor movement was in no small part one of the reasons why I thought that this would be a a good time to stop, because there were so many other sectors of the country that I wasn't relating to that I found attractive to relate to.
1: Clearly, uh, your wife being an artist is part of the story of how you come to write this book. When did you
0: meet her? So I met Micheline, we got married in 2006. I think I left the AFL-CIO in either six or seven. Throughout my organizing career, when I learned my craft, art and culture were never a part of what I did. So therefore, when I practiced it, I didn't do it. And when I started teaching younger organizers how to think about their work, I, I didn't teach it. And then I met Micheline. And married her. And I realized, holy shit, I missed a pretty big boat. It was through our work together, supporting work at the intersection of art and social justice, that I learned that it was not just organizers that didn't think strategically about the use of art and culture, but it was artists themselves who often thought about their work as individual forms of political expression, but not in the service of social movements. And it was that intersection that the book was focused on addressing. So
1: tell me about the seeds of that. Was she social justice oriented in her work before coming together with you? Or was it like looking to bridge things between you or finding common interests? Or how does that start to take place that you start a foundation and you start teaching and working in that intersection?
0: Her work was not political. What I would describe as political. Her work was I don't know how many Greek literature experts there are on the podcast, but her work was based upon Ovid's Metamorphosis, which is-
1: big. I read that on her site, yes.
0: So she depicted uh, stories of Greek mythology. In fact, and all of these esoteric academic organizations that formed in support of that would actually call bring her in because there was never any visuals associated with it. But it was, so it wasn't the specific content of her art. But it was exposure to the art world through Michelin that I began to think about how art penetrates popular culture and how it reaches the heart. And what I had been doing as an organizer all my life is going after the mind.
1: I've heard people from lots of different angles talking about how the left or progressives often are intellectualizing and not using emotion or the heart or however you might put it and that that has sometimes left us at a disadvantage i i think that we've gotten it right sometimes but it, it does seem like it's a theme
0: yeah it's ju- it's just an ongoing problem and uh it's compounded by the fact that community and labor organizations tend to be hidebound in the way that they do things Community organizations put tens of thousands of dollars into poll-tested messaging. Their ability to think about art, which is not controllable, which is not message-focused, is difficult. And the, and the, and the timeline is very different. Uh, social change on the timeline of artists, Hank Willis Thomas, the photographer out of New York, said on his timeline, it's 10, 20, 30, and 40 years because he was looking at narrative change. He wasn't looking at winning yesterday as all organizers are doing. So there were different approaches.
1: So you decide to start a foundation and fund some of these things, which I think means looking around at what the options are. I assume it means taking applications from people. But tell me about why you do that and what you learned doing that.
0: Well, what I learned is that when there is collaborations between artists and organizers, we can win and we can change narratives, and we can change politics. If you want, it would take me four or five minutes, but I have a great story to illustrate that. Please. So this goes back to 2013 uh, in Baltimore. Uh, Baltimore is one of the last of the East Coast cities that have blocks and blocks and blocks of blighted and dilapidating housing. And there was a collaboration afoot between an artist named Justin Nethercutt, his street name was Nether, and a housing organizer named Carol Ott. Carol was a white Republican. Nether was a white Democrat. And they approached us with an idea on how to address it. By us, I mean Micheline and I. Nether said, what I want to do is assemble a team of 15 artists to put murals on the sides of these buildings. And I'll get to the Carol Ott thing in a a second. Uh, And I said, I'm not the most diplomatic person in the world, but in my most diplomatic tone, uh, I said, that's great, but I really don't think it's gonna change anything. Nether says, yeah, but. And the but was the work that Carol was doing, which was a QR code. So when you scan the QR code, up pops the name of the slumlord who owns the building and the politicians that represent that district. Here's the story, 15 murals. I just wanna talk about two of them to get to the point. The first one was a picture of a raven in Baltimore. The football team is the Baltimore Ravens and their colors are purple. Justin did this picture of a raven holding wood slats in its claw and caution ta- police caution tape around its beak, symbolizing the rebuilding of housing. It goes up, the QR code goes up, and two days later, the mural is intact, but the QR code gets ripped down. And I tell the story in the book in, in more detail. And so Justin goes back two days later and puts the QR code back up. And I don't know what it takes to get a demolition license in Baltimore, but within weeks, that building came down. It got some press attention. NBC or CBS headline was Art Aimed to Shame. So second, third, fourth mural goes up. Fifth mural is done by an artist named Gaia, very well known internationally if you're into street artists, who did a, a mural of Pharaoh wearing a golden headdress. But instead of looking out over Egypt, he's looking out over a cotton plantation. And the words exile in Hebrew and English are written on the bottom. And the landlord goes ballistic because the QR code is up there and calls up the Baltimore Sun, which is the daily paper in Baltimore, and says, I just have two things to say. One is, this is the idea of Jews, because he was Jewish, keeping blacks down in the ghetto. So this is hate speech. And number two, I don't own this building. And so the Baltimore Sun, because he's a powerful landlord, assigned three reporters to the story. And they did a page and a half hatchet job on this whole project. And so the Baltimore Weekly, which is published only once a week as opposed to daily, but as the progressive alternative was at that time to the Baltimore Sun, called up Justin for comment and then asked Justin if it was okay with him if they called the Baltimore Sun to make some inquiries there. So one of the questions you might have guessed that they asked is whether or not they reported what the landlord had said or researched it. And so the Baltimore Weekly used its own funds to do its own investigative research to find out, number one, that the guy actually did have controlling authority of this building, and two, had been cited 500 times for lead paint in other units that he owned. And so the Baltimore Weekly publishes this And now there's this volley going on between the Baltimore Weekly and the Baltimore Sun. And every time a new mural goes up, it draws more press because of this volley. So to make a long story short, at the end of the summer, the mayor threw up her hands and said enough of this and added $20 million to the demolition budget than what she had already offered up uh, to the city council. And so it was an example of a collaboration between artists and organizers. Uh, And it was also an example of art not just being a reaction to or a reflection of social conditions, but a contributor to social change.
1: I could imagine getting a bunch of blighted buildings taken down being a positive. Did it further building of replacement useful housing for people? Or do you know how the story goes from that point forward?
0: From your lips. There was an effort by somebody to organize in those communities for that purpose, but it never got the funding that it needed, and so it didn't take off, so it became a kind of one-and-done project.
1: Because I have driven to a disc golf course in Baltimore from time to time, going down streets that that look like they are a mess. They you know, a lot of boarded-up buildings, and there's work yet to do in that city, of course. But... That story that you tell is one of a lot that are in your book, Artworks, which is absolutely replete with stories and references to different groups doing things in areas of film and music and painting and across the spectrum of art. Well worth the reading for people who are interested in making change in the country, which I hope is a number of people who listen to this. Is there another story from the book that you would like to choose as an example?
0: Sure. There are multiple, as you said, stories.
1: Um... One that occurs to me that I'd like to learn a little bit more about is I have two friends, Lance and Brandon Kramer, who are documentarians in D.C., and they did a film called The First Step, which is about incarceration and Trump First Step Act. He signed it, at least. So Kartemkwenk, Did some backup help for them, and they show up in your book? Tell me about Kartemkin and, and, and sort of impact film work.
0: So Kartemkin, it's a weird name because it's the merger of three last names. The kin at the end is the guy that's running the show now. What Kartemkin did that few others had done is he used film... Not just, they started out using film to critique society, but they quickly moved from a critique of society to using film in collaboration with community and labor organizers. And so, for example, one of the things that they did is they made a film about a strike that ASME was organizing. I think it was in unemployment offices. They would do it in cinema verite style and string together a bunch of ASME members' stories about what was going on. And then they would hold court in one of the local diners or bars or some combination of diners and bars with the members to show this film. And the idea for, from ASME's point of view was to inspire other workers in the city to support their strike. And in fact, that film did that. They win the strike partially as a result. I mentioned Kartemkin in the film, mostly because it was one of the very early pioneers of doing this work. I'd like to share a couple more dramatic examples. So documentary films are one thing, but narrative films are another. And in the book, I talk about the importance of impact campaigns. Impact campaigns are, there are now uh, an occupation called impact producers, which is what we used to call organizers. And impact producers are people that think strategically about how to use film to support ongoing social justice work. The chapter starts out with comparing and contrasting two of Jane Fonda's films. Jane Fonda created a film production company called IPC, through which she made four or five films. The IPC was the Indochina Peace Campaign. That's what it stood for, but it was just called IPC Productions. Two of the films that she created were The China Syndrome and Nine to Five. The China Syndrome, Jack Lemon, Richard Dreyfus, Michael Douglas, Jane Fonder, and Michael Douglas are reporters that go into a nuclear generating station on the verge of a meltdown. And the story as it goes on, basically asks the question about whether it's possible for a nuclear generating station to stay safe and also turn a profit. So this was going on at a time that the nuclear energy industry was on the rise. But that's as far as it went. It was a film that came out about the risks associated with nuclear energy. But 10 days later, after the film comes out, Three Mile Island happens. And for those of your listeners who don't know what Three Mile Island is, it's a nuclear generating station in Pennsylvania that released the most radioactive release that you can imagine. It was five on a Richter scale of one to seven, the release. And that was 10 days into the film. So box office attendance, nine times what the production cost was. And so it really lifted up an issue. Ted Turner told Jane that it turned him against nuclear energy. So it's an example of how films can shape individual ideas. But I contrast it with another film Jane did called 9 to 5. Most of your listeners will probably know 9 to 5. 9 to 5 was both an organization started by uh, Karen Nussbaum and Ellen Cassidy and the name of the film. At that time, Jane Fonda's activism had wound down around the war because it was over and she decided she wanted to put energy into women's rights. She, I think she approached Karen actually to learn about the plight of secretaries during that time period. Karen invited her to a bunch of meetings of their affiliates around the country. And in one of the meetings, towards the end, Jane makes this offhanded comment along the lines of, so how many people in the audience have revenge fantasies against their boss? And the place lights up. And one woman says, I want to ground his bones into coffee beans and serve them to other managers. And at that point, Jane realized that the film needed not to be a drama because she was worried about it being painted as a feminist film, but a comedy. And so she and Lily Tomlin and Dolly Parton created 9 to 5, the film. And then working with Karen and Ellen, did a 20-city tour with the film, where 9 to 5, the organization convened their members, and the film was also shown. And that 20-city tour led to doubling the number of 9 to 5 affiliates it had. And so the compare and contrast is that China syndrome was important in terms of individual ideas. Nine to five was very important in terms of building organization. And that's the nature of impact production. And that's one of the kind of powers that film has in political mobilization.
1: So what was your purpose in putting this book together? Obviously, you find a lot of examples of collaboration between artists and activists, But there's also, I think, a sense that you said earlier in the interview that there isn't as much as maybe would be useful. So why write this book and who are you hoping to read it and what change are you hoping for?
0: Because it's not happening on scale. And rather than doing a critique of what isn't happening, I wanted to try to draw out as many examples of where it has happened and what the impact of that happening was. I have a chapter on philanthropy, and the last thing that any donor or program officer in a foundation wants to hear is, well, you're not doing it right. You need to do it this way. So I didn't want to write a book that was prescriptive, but I wanted to write a book that made the case for collaboration between organizing and the arts world. My primary audiences originally were organizers and artists. It wasn't meant to be a general public interest book, and I wanted the audiences to include uh, museums and foundations, so I did a chapter on each. There has been, I should report, great take-up, People's Action, some of your listeners will know them, uh, 35 affiliates around the country, community organizing on four or five main issues, bought 500 copies of the book and invited me three times to speak to their members and leadership about how to implement programs like this. Greenpeace did something similar. They bought 300 books and brought in their board members, donors, staff members and activists for this discussion. I was just up in Montreal at the Montreal Museum of Fine Art and they are thinking about museums as community building institution at a time that a lot of museums are becoming community action targets. So it's beginning to have some traction in the museum world, you know there are four hundred thousand museum workers. In the philanthropic world, and certainly in the organizing and arts community, and so uh, I really wanted to lift this up, and I wanted to do what I can to help people who are not already doing this work to do it, or those who are doing to do it better. It's it's
1: a little aside from your general focus in that it's electoral politics, but. We have an election coming up between the former president and the current president, most likely, that is going to be enormously consequential for people all over the country on almost any policy area that you can think of, including whether or not we continue as a normal democratic republic. One of the things that is troubling me now, and I think a lot of people, is how far we are from a kind of focused campaign collective action against this happening. It sort of feels like we're sleepwalking towards Trump again. If you were trying to bring art into this big contest, uh, great battlefield as I see it. Great title. It's from Lincoln. What sort of things do you think that artists and activists could get together on, on this big, big thing that's coming up all too soon?
0: I think there's literally nothing they couldn't get together on. A great example of that is the *Shepherd Fairy* Hope Poster. That Hope Poster really fueled, supported, nourished, nurtured activism to the extent that we can go deeper in our collaborations between artists and community organizations now as people develop their Strategies for next year. I mean, they're already starting to shore up. All kinds of expressions of art can be useful. But I want to emphasize that it has to be at the beginning. It can't be inviting Billy Bragg to a demonstration where he performs one or two songs. That's not sort of using art in the way, in its most powerful way. It's lifting up people, makes them feel good. Everyone likes to see Billy Bragg. But artists have things to contribute strategically. So think about the role of Harry Belafonte. He's one of the few historical figures that I focus on in the book because he really embodied this. He was an activist who understood the power of his art. He, as a result, wound up at the strategy tables at SNCC and many of the civil rights organizations, was a close confidant and advisor to King. We need to get these collaborations together before strategies are already baked because once they're baked, it forces people to work from the outside in around somebody else's project.
1: I can imagine that if Trump did win, that that would spur a ton of resistance art. That tends to be what happens if you don't plan things. There will be so much impetus to fight a lot of the actions that might come out of the government. But it seems like it really would be helpful not to have to get to that to bring people in.
0: Yeah, that's why we gotta do it now. I mean, there's no shortage of issues, as you know, around which artists are working and organizers are working. The possibilities are huge. When I look you up,
1: it says that you are a member of Democracy Partners, and that seems to be a group of people who are affiliated to help on a lot of social movement type campaigning. And, and I've interviewed a number of your partners on the show, but I haven't really asked them about that as an organization. What, what is Democracy Partners?
0: It's an amalgamation uh, bringing together of seasoned and young activist organizers who do this work professionally. We have sort of a, a political side to the firm that just do, does electoral politics which you're probably very familiar with. And then we have another side of the firm that deals with the nonprofit world. And my focus in the firm has been, prior to starting to write this book, philanthropy, donor advising, so so that there would be strategic impact and the goals and missions of those organizations would be fulfilled. And so we really cover the gamut. We just don't work for organizations or people that are not progressive. Do you work as teams on these things? Or are they sort of
1: each of you doing your own efforts? How does it work internally?
0: Both. yeah, both. The beauty of the table, if you will, is there's a lot of skill sets around the table. And so we kind of naturally form teams to work on one issue or the other. And then there are these projects that only require one person, uh, depending upon their nature. Uh, And those are done independently. So really both.
1: One of the things that I noted reading your book, Artworks, is you are not very present as a participant in a lot of these projects. And my guess was that some of them you had some role in, or maybe Democracy Partners did. Is that true? And what connection do you have to what goes on in some of these examples?
0: Some of it as was through my organizing experience. Some of it was through philanthropy. Some of it was through friends. I actually did try to keep myself out of the book because no one wants to read about someone talking about themselves. But I did have a relationship, except for the civil rights movement, because I'm 69. So it was a little before my time. I have had relationships with each of the subject areas that I describe. And in part, that was the reason I felt most comfortable talking about them because I had firsthand experience.
1: The last thing I really want to ask you about is there are several movies, which I believe you've been a co-producer on, Bleeding Edge, Social Dilemma, Boycott, and I guess upcoming Borderland. How is that fitting into what you're doing and, and what's going on there with these movies? I have seen Social Dilemma, but not the others.
0: Yeah. So they're meant to be films that can have impact. Micheline and I get involved with films that have impact, Uh, and each of those films has its own kind of impact. Uh, Bleeding Edge, uh, made by Kirby Dick, and Amy Ziering is a movie, a film about the medical device industry and tells horror stories about the way that the medical device industry and their abettors in Congress are exploiting people's health. And we thought it would be the basis for action around these industries. And does that in fact, mean like getting people
1: prescribed things they don't need or the quality is bad? Or I, I haven't seen it.
0: Well, so one story that they tell is of an orthopedic surgeon who does hip replacements for a living hundreds, if not thousands of them. And this orthopedic surgeon, who was re- quite renowned was giving a speech in Oregon, and he had a psychotic break. And there's a whole story about that. Uh, And so his wife comes out to get him and nurtures him. He comes back to reality, and he says to himself, I'm a doctor. I can figure out what happened. And so he learned that the amount of cobalt in his body was 100 times what it should be. And what was happening is the hip replacement piece which was a metal on metal. There were five different kinds of hip replacement. I don't, it's not stuff that I generally get into. He was poisoned by the stuff he was putting into people's bodies? Exactly. And then he had to go back to each of his patients. Oh my God. He said, here's my experience. That led to Bayer Aspirin, the corporate company, and they withdrew their devices from the American market. That film had real impact. And boycott is having a a pretty big impact right now as we speak. Um, Borderland has not yet come out. Uh, It's just reaching people. What's it about? It's about the border industrial complex. This is about immigration and migration reform and how the states are capitalizing on the border industry. Pretty timely. Yeah, I would think so. It's a very powerful film. Do you
1: Hope that that will affect policy, the election? What's. Yeah, I
0: think it, it, it's positioned perfectly uh, to deal with Trump. I mean, between his family separation policies and his vile language describing Mexicans, I mean, it, it just works perfectly. The timing for it could not have been better.
1: It strikes me that a life working in the areas that you have chosen would be fairly fulfilling. You feel like you've spent your time trying to make the world better. What keeps you going?
0: Um, Right now it's my book. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We'll see in a year from now, we'll see. I may write a second uh, along the same lines to talk about what I've learned from this process because it was a three-year passion of love. Now it's been since mid-July, it was published in mid-July. So after the next year or so leading up to the election, I'll have learned a lot about what works and what doesn't from the museums and the foundations and the organizations that have been tempted to embrace that. And you know, the good news is that part of what keeps me going is that there is constant take up. So next week I'm gonna be in San Francisco uh, and the Service Employees International Union is hosting an event around the book. That's a big break, right? Because unions are the last to entertain new ideas. And it's not surprising to me that SCIU is one of the unions that are doing that, but they are doing it. And so as long as there continues to be take up, I'll be charged.
1: Are political campaigns quicker or slower to take up ideas like
0: art in, in their there They are effort. so much slower. That's
1: what I was thinking. It was even worse.
0: I did a <laughs> webinar for Paige Gardner a few weeks ago there's all political operatives on her webinars, PSG Consulting, they were jazzed about it. Now, are they going to do anything with it? I don't know. Uh, But there's an openness to it, in part, because we all know what we're doing is not winning, at least on the scale that we need to win. And so we need to think about. So I think there's an openness right now to thinking about other alternatives than just what we've done in the past.
1: Well, we've built up a culture of analytics in politics, which has been useful in some ways in focusing our allocation of resources, but we have also maybe lost some of the poetry of campaigning that like Mario Cuomo referred to.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good point.
1: Well, Ken, it's an honor to talk to you. Is there a question I should have asked you that
0: I didn't? Well, there's some other great stories in the book, but uh, there's not any kind of, you're a great interviewer. You really are. I I like the way you weave together the personal and the political. I've done a lot of these interviews now, and you're one of the few people that does that and does that well. So I want to thank you for that.
1: Well, I'm flattered
0: by that. Appreciate it.
1: Anything else you want to say? Nope. That was Ken. He is at democracypartners.com.